Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got a Grow CFO mentor with me, Patrick Butcher. Hello, Patrick. Good afternoon, Kevin. Good to be with you. Patrick, this is the first time we've done a podcast together, and I hope it's not the last, but can you briefly introduce yourself to our audience and tell us all about you? I'm not sure I can achieve both of those objectives by both being brief and comprehensive, but my name is Patrick Butcher. I am a CFO, or I was a CFO, worked in a wide range of different organizations from private equity through public sector through to listed companies. I was born in South Africa, qualified with Deloitte's, came over to the UK in 1992 in the process of moving to a portfolio career. I've got two non-executive directorships and looking to get a few more. Brilliant, brilliant. So that long career of being a CFO. So Patrick, tell me where all, all of this started. Where did your career originate? Well, in truth, it originated a really long time ago because my grandfather was an accountant and he uh, was an accountant in South Africa. He was one of the first people to be accredited as an auditor and he finished up as senior partner at an auditing firm in Durban, which is a city in South Africa. My father then became an accountant. And as I was leaving school, I had a conversation with my father about what I was going to do. I indicated I wanted to be a lawyer. He indicated two things. One, that he didn't want me to be a lawyer and he was confident I didn't want to be a lawyer. And uh, the second was that he wasn't going to pay for me to go to university. And so I needed to get a job. So you got accountancy in your genes, yet you decide you want to be a lawyer. Why? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I've never been the most compliant individual. And in fact, uh, I grew up in South Africa, as I said earlier. I was boarding school and uh, was occasionally in and out of trouble. And on one occasion, when we still had corporal punishment back then, I was being caned by the housemaster. He stopped partway through administering the beating. And he said, Butcher, I have discovered what your problem is. Your problem is that you genuinely believe that the rules were written for other people and do not apply to you, which I obviously denied. He continued the beating. But there was some truth in that, that I I wanted to do something different. Now, many people wouldn't think going to be a lawyer was a particularly rebellious act. In truth, I hadn't really thought it through. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Been watching LA Law, it seemed like fun. One of my friends was going to do it. I was just as easily persuaded that I should be an accountant in, instead of a lawyer. And so I went straight from school and joined Deloitte in Johannesburg, did my articles and studied, did a university degree part-time through the organization called UNISA, which is the South African equivalent of the Open University, qualified with Deloitte's. And then as I was finishing up Deloitte's, met my wife at Deloitte's and we then got married and came over to the UK in 1992, which is then really when my career began. I regard the time at Deloitte's as part of training and studying. And then I arrived in the UK with Deloitte's and started off with Deloitte's for about 18 months or so before moving into the NHS. The NHS? Gosh. What were you doing in the NHS? Well, while I was at Deloitte's, I'd come over in 1992. I'd done a a little bit of advisory work for financial institutions in South Africa. So I'd come to work in the the city, the financial institution centre of the world with Deloitte's doing 
consulting and advisory work. 1992, some of the older listeners may remember, was a bit of a recession. There was very little work going, but there was some government spending and the government was doing what it does best, which is reorganize public services. The NHS was in the middle of a in the middle of implementing a series of reforms. So there was lots of advisory work. So I went in to advise the NHS while I was at Deloitte's. And then after a while, they, they offered me a lot more money than Deloitte's were paying, which <laughs> I know that will sound odd to your listeners, but that was the case. And so I left Deloitte's and, and joined the NHS initially in a, in a regional, uh, regional office type role. And then quite soon after that, I moved into King's College Hospital, which will be known to some of your UK listeners, which is a large teaching hospital in southeast London. And that was my first, my first CFO role. Brilliant. So CFO in the NHS. So that kind of puts you towards large institutions, UK public sector. Is that the way the career continued after that? It, yeah, it did. That's... King's role was a formative role. It was the first time I've been involved in an organization where we had budgets and financial challenges. Very different in the NHS from some of the other organizations I've worked in, but ultimately you have a you have a resource, you're looking to allocate it, you're getting people to try and use that money efficiently. So yeah, the kind of productivity challenges that you would have in any normal organization, we had those as well in the NHS. Clearly, you're not driven by profit, you're driven by maximizing health outcomes, but the the tools that you deploy are quite quite similar. And spent five years there, uh, learned a lot about you know, working on a board. We had a non-executive board. My first, my very first chair was Stanley Carms, who founded Dixon's, and he had a hard time understanding why I couldn't provide him with revenue and gross profit figures every morning because he was used to that coming from retail. So learn, learn a lot from him and from other members on on the board, and then from there went to. London Underground, which was at that point being broken up into a sort of part privatization before being transferred to London Mayor. The London Mayor hadn't quite arrived yet and spent two years in the middle of political turmoil. Ah, that's a big change, Patrick. That's moving out of healthcare, which is very much providing a service, into transport, which is very much a revenue generating business. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the benefits I've had from my career, which has been pretty varied, has been the opportunity to work in lots and lots of different sectors. And as we go as we go through, you will wrestle as you seek to establish a pattern for the sectors that I've worked in. The proximate reason was that the the managing director of the underground was the ex chief executive from King's, so he knew me, and I went with him, and we both got there and realised that this wasn't quite what we had thought it would be. And so I spent a couple of years there. And then decided that that I needed to try and get out of the public sector. I hadn't I hadn't really planned to go into the public sector. I didn't didn't understand it. And South Africa doesn't have anything, or didn't certainly then have anything like the scale of organisations that we have in the public sector here. And much like my career, I got involved as a public sector management consultant quite by accident. Yeah, yeah. I joined Cooper's yeah. Mybrand from um, chemical industry. Yeah. And along to my first project, it was, uh, oh, you've had some in- involvement in sorting out capital spares. In fact, the last thing I've done on the chemical plant was review our capital spares holding. Oh, says this director, we're, do- we're doing a project on capital spares for the British Army. Kevin, would you like to come along and join yeah, the project till, till about Easter? And the mistake I, m- I made at this point was, Alan, which Easter? Yeah. <laughs> Three years later, 
I was defense consultant. <laughs> no, no. Could well have happened to me at, at Deloitte, but I decided consulting wasn't for me. So I, I sort of found myself in the public sector by mistake. I've done two really interesting roles from which I had learned a huge amount about big organizations, budgets, boards, regulation, government, politics. I did write a, a rather unhelpful letter to a senior member of the Department for Transport, which was then subsequently leaked to The Guardian. And this was in 2001, just after I'd resigned. And not, not leaked by me, I hasten to add. In the old days, when you had broadsheets, you were above the fold or below the fold. And this was in 2001, after 9-11. Bin Laden was below the fold, and my little article was above the fold of The Guardian. Oh, fantastic. Which, which is, was a point when you would have thought that I might have learned the lesson that you know, doing something that makes you feel better for 20 minutes is not necessarily a great long-term plan because that did come around 10 years later and people, yeah, everybody knew that I hadn't leaked it, but nonetheless, I'd written the letter, which I believe to be true about the reductions they were making to our budgets. This I, perhaps I, sounds a bit like the Patrick back at boarding school being told that they recognised rules, but they yeah. just didn't apply to him. Well, I've, it's been a long process of coming to terms with that. So I left London Underground, went into a private equity business, which was backed by Fortress Investments and Soros Real Estate. And it was a real estate outsourcing. So big, big and complex occupied estates, essentially transferred to this entity, which would then manage the real estate risk. It was a good idea that two or three big contracts got done, one for the Inland Revenue Customs and Excise, which we had, and one for the Department of Work and Pensions, as it's now called. But then debt and leverage started to be invented and get juiced up a bit. And so everyone was doing sale and leasebacks, and they were much simpler, and you got a lot more money. So the business model was clearly changing. We scaled the business that we built on the basis of one big contract a year, because at that point, there was a pipeline of them, and it became clear that that wasn't going to happen. And there might be some smaller deals, but it wasn't going to grow at anything like the pace that we had hoped. So we needed to start rescaling the platform. At some point, it became clear that it was either me or the financial controller that needed to go. And I definitely didn't want to do his job. So I decided I would leave and let him take my job. And in fact, quite often in my career, I've been able to not necessarily immediately after I left, but a bit after I left, um, see person who worked for me get promoted up into the role, which is something I'm, I'm, I've always been keen on. And so from that, I went into rail freight. It's a company called English, Welsh and Scottish Railways, which was owned by private equity who had bought it from the British Rail as part of privatization. It was the, the dominant heavy haul rail freight provider, so mostly coal, steel aggregates. And the plan there was go in. I arrived at the same time as a new chief executive, developer plan for exit because they'd held it for six to seven years and there was no plan because it turns out rail freight in the UK, it, there are some opportunities to grow, but the UK is a really small country. And it's yeah, it, while it's hard to get a truck down the M1, you try and get a container train from Southampton into London in the rush hour. I can assure you the railways are just as congested. So rail freight really works in North America and Europe where you've got long distances and, and it's easy to out-compete the truck with, with rail freight. So we needed a, a growth story. And so we set up a business in France. We needed to restructure the commercial arrangements we have with our customers, which we did. And we needed to drive productivity, which we did, including, unfortunately, we had to, we had to go through a strike to get there because the union was, would not recognize the market realities we were operating in. And so we did all of that. And then 
as part of a plan, we realized there was no point in selling it to another private equity company because why would they be any different than our existing shareholders? And so the most logical exit was some form of a trade sale. At that point, Deutsche Bahn, which is a German railway, was in expansive mode. And they, I remember having a, a wonderful conversation with the chief executive, a gentleman called Hartmut Maidorn, where he said, we have taken over Denmark, we've gone into Holland, no one cares about Belgium, we've done a deal with the Swiss, and now we are going east. And I said, stop right there. Last time you tried that, Hartmut, it all ended very badly, and the Americans came, and he roared with laughter, and he said, that is why we need you to come from the west. And they had a very, almost like dad's army map with little arrows going in different directions. And so it was clear that they were the right buyer for us. They couldn't go into France because SNCF and Deutsche Bahn have a long history. They bought us, we'd set up a business in France and that was what they really wanted. They weren't that interested in the UK because, as I said, from a rail freight perspective, not hugely um, economically viable in the, in the very long term. It's viable, but not on a growth basis. They did nicely out of the deal. Our shareholders did nicely. It's one of those strange things where people can work really hard for years and years, and then events can either really help or really hinder. Uh, most of the shareholders in EWS were North American. On the, the Thursday, we closed the deal. The pound dollar was at 211, which is the highest it's ever been. And so our US shareholders were delighted. And so it was, it was a really good exit. I then was, was really clear I didn't want to be yeah, a small cog in the gigantic Deutsche Bahn wheel. And so I just worked to support transition and integration for five or six months and then took really took probably a year out. I hadn't planned to take a year out. I planned just to take a bit of time and then realized I wasn't looking for a job and so probably wasn't really that excited. And, and I think if, if I, in hindsight, I, I don't regret the time off, I, but I do think I could have been more purposeful and deliberate. So one of the things I do advise people who say, should I take a sabbatical is, yes, either deliberately do nothing, and that's absolutely fine. Just say, I'm going to sit on a beach for three months and read books, and then I'll look for another job. That's okay. I'm absolutely fine with that. Or say, I really want to learn Arabic or go sailing or travel something or you know, whatever it is, but be conscious in your choice. And I, I sort of drifted around. We had young kids. We had, we had a that point, we had a, a second house. So there was just enough activity to keep me busy without me really having to make a choice. And then, of course, this was 2008. And at that point, the GFC happened. And it seemed very irresponsible to be unemployed while the world was imploding around us. So I started looking for a job. And then I got what, what was probably the most formative in some ways, of certainly the second part of my career role was CFO Network Rail, which for those who don't know, it looks after all the rail infrastructure in the UK. So tracks and signals and tunnels and bridges and, and the big stations. I think what was interesting for me about that role was compared to certainly the last two roles, the underground perhaps by exception, it was much bigger. And therefore, it was no longer possible for me through the sheer force of my effort and will to drive change and strategy. The scale and complexity of the organization meant that it was much more about sitting in the center and you know, supporting and encouraging and creating frameworks and corporate governance and you know, getting the right metrics and making sure that, that people were aligned around values. EWS it was much smaller and it was just about driving for whatever the results were. And what was interesting was that I didn't realize that until later on, um, partly the role model of the chief exec who was there when I arrived, but left quite soon after I got there. And so I sort of stepped into his 
performance management role. Essentially, I tried to make myself the control system for network rail. I don't mean train control, I mean management and business control. And it was exhausting because I have a high capacity for absorbing and distilling information and analyzing and asking the right questions. But there are a lot more people serving up material for you to look at than you can possibly do. I just thought if I kept running harder and harder and kept you know, reading and analyzing and, and coming up with the right answers, that was the right way to do it. And, and I think the, yeah, that was the moment when I realized that what had been a strength to a degree, but, a, but certainly an overused strength, and to some extent, it's the reason why I didn't believe the rules applied, because I was smarter than the people who wrote the rules. Therefore, my rules were obviously better than their rules. And I was convinced of my own rightness. And because quite often, relatively smart, quite often I was right, I felt the most efficient way to get to the answer was for me to just tell people what the answer was. As I was getting more and more tired and more and more stressed, the way in which I was telling people what the right answer was became less and less constructive and more and more telling and demeaning and undermining. And we had, there was a, a woman at Trudy at... So it sounds as though the wheels were about to fall off the train, Patrick. I think they probably were, if I'm honest. I didn't get to the point where the wheels fell off, so I'm not so you don't know how, how far the wobbling would have continued before the oscillations derailed the train. But anyway, I was fortunate enough to meet, meet this, this person who agreed to work with me, and she did quite a, she did, yeah, essentially a 360, but it was much more powerful because she worked in the organization. I think lots of people who get mentors, and there's a hugely important role for mentors. This wasn't really that. This was about yeah, a day-to-day coach. What I needed was intensive therapy rather than structured thinking. So she would follow me around and watch me in meetings and we'd had feedback. And there was a moment I remember at the end of a meeting where people hadn't done what I'd asked them from the month before. And I told them in language that I'm not proud of, not, not bad language, but just very demeaning and undermining what I expected and was pretty angry with them. And then when we were reflecting on the meeting afterwards, she said, so do you think those people will ever come to you if they have a problem and need your help? That's what well, I hadn't thought about that. She said, okay. My second question is, did you feel that did you feel that they needed to be shouted at? And do you feel better for having shouted at them? I said they absolutely need to be shouted at, and I feel a lot better for shouting at them. So that's interesting because when I I haven't read your employment contract, but I'm pretty sure that it says you're paid to be effective and not to feel better. And we've already agreed that your behavior was not effective. So really, what are you doing? And that was a moment when I realized not only was I coming across as somebody that I didn't want to come across as, that wasn't who, who I felt I was, it was how I was landing, but, but also it actually wasn't that effective. And so that started a, a program of reflection, which has continued. I don't think you get to plateaus of learning and then you wallow for a bit and then you kick up again. Think that. Was that the first time, Patrick, that you'd had a coach or a mentor? I had had an external, the industry wasn't nearly as well developed as it is now, a person. The problem was that I, with somebody, I was too immature to benefit from a coach, bluntly. And the coach or the mentor or the therapist can only help you with what you share with them because they don't have a crystal ball into knowing it yet. And I was just sharing a curated vision which would steer the person towards two points, which I then go, oh, yes, those are really useful. I'll work on those. Thank you very much. But, but I knew those were going to be the points before we started the meeting. And so I didn't engage with it in a curious, open-minded, let's see what I can learn about myself, about other people, 
I didn't really believe, if I'm honest, that anyone could teach me anything. And I think that that network rail was the mirror moment. And I was probably in my early to mid 40s. I don't regret things because we are a product of our background and circumstance. But I wonder, had I reached that point sooner, would I have been a better husband, a better father and better leader and manager in the workplace? So if, if anybody's listening to this and recognizing a little bit of themselves in the Patrick that was at Network Rail, would you say you were the right person, having had that experience yourself, to mentor them? I can certainly help people understand the risks of following a pattern, which to some extent we get trained in, as particularly as accountants, where you're paid in your early part of your career to come up with answers. And if your career progresses, you get to a transition point where having the answers is not not enough. You need to start to come up with the right questions and you then have to let go of a piece of your identity, which was the person who always had the answers. And so I think that is transition is something that I've seen lots of people do and I've helped a few people in large organizations make make that change. Yeah, I love working with bright, ambitious people who are curious about how to broaden themselves and how to broaden the impact that they have on, on those that are around them. Yeah, and, and quite often the question that you're answering doesn't have a yes or no or a right and wrong answer. It's, hang on, there's a series of options here. What are the pros and cons of each? Yeah. What are the questions we have to ask as a business? Uh, absolutely. And, and I think so often when people put together yeah, investment appraisals or yeah, an M&A proposition or even a strategy, they present the final point answer that they want to recommend to the board. And I spend a lot of time with people saying, okay, so that's option one. What's option two? And people get very frustrated because they spend three months proving that this thing that they've already decided is the right one. And, and you go, no, no, you've, you've narrowed. If you go to the board with that, all they can do is say yes or no. And that may or may not be helpful. Sometimes things are yes or no, but, but more often than not, well, here's, we all agree this is what we're trying to achieve. And we agree that this is the dimension that we're discussing. And here are three options. Yeah. So, however many. Here are the, the good things and the bad things. Basic option appraisal. What happens typically is people use gut instinct to make a decision and then spend three months gathering data to justify the decision that they had already made. In which case, don't bother gathering the data. Just say, my gut says, <laughs> don't gather any data. Well, it's your gut. That's okay. Maybe we'll trust your gut. And it'll save us all a ton of heartache reading this comprehensive, biased, stacked deck that you've produced for us. If you just believe it's right, well, just say, I believe this is the way to do it. Yeah. I think one of the great things that the, the CFO does bring is that kind of understanding of the the impact a decision is going to have on the rest of the organization. Yeah, so if yeah got- absolutely. And I think the, it sort of started Network Rail and I moved on from Network Rail and wanted, moved into a PLC environment. And partly because all the headhunters told me that I could never be a PLC finance director because I'd never worked in a PLC and did really? not sit well with me. So I went to the go-ahead group. And at that point, this was probably 2015, 2016, 2015, I think. At that point, we were just beginning to start talking properly about the importance of companies thinking about all their stakeholders. And as you said, one of the things that finance directors have to do is understand the impacts. We get trained in financial things, but understand the financial impacts of a decision. If you hire this many people, it's going to cost you this much. If you're 
sales initiative is this successful, it's going to deliver Y sales at Z margin, which will generate X cash. But increasingly now in the modern world, we're being asked as business leaders to think about our impacts across a much wider range of stakeholder groups than just the investors that are interested in the financial outcomes. And, and therefore, I think that the role of, of a CFO has such huge opportunity to roam across the organization because everyone wants to know what's your environmental impact? What's the impact if you do this? Where yeah, how are you, how are you what's your supply chain like? Do you know where your you know where your product comes from? And I and I think CFOs are, have the opportunity to get involved in that much wider stakeholder analysis. And and I remain convinced that unless businesses become far more sensitive to their overall impact, not just their financial impact, life as business leaders is going to get harder and harder. Many of my colleagues in listed and other businesses complain about the increasing burden of regulation. And while I share I share the observation that the regulation is increasing and it is a burden, we have to ask ourselves why is it that we the regulators feel that they need to regulate us? Why is it that they don't think that we are trustworthy? And I think there are enough examples in the corporate space, organizations and individuals that have not behaved in a manner that is worthy of trust to explain why we've got there. I think that's, and I've recorded a number of podcasts with my friend Graham Arrowsmith, where we talked about companies in the more environmental space, companies that are more attractive, particularly to millennials, where the environmental impact of the organization is almost as important as the product that's made. My son is 22 and looking for a looking for his first job and and he's much more interested in in what the business does and what kind of arena they're in than he is about exactly how much it pays or where it is. Absolutely right that it, it and rightly so. I don't agree necessarily with the actions of some of the extreme climate change protesters, but you can't but agree with the reality that there's a huge problem. And what I like about ESG is it's not just talking about environmental issues, it's talking about social issues. And, and, and we see the impact of social issues in our country where we've got people who work but can't live. And that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. And how is it that we've got to a place where some people in society, myself included, get paid a ton of money and lots of other people don't? How did we get there? And more importantly, what can we as business leaders do to you know, recreate a world that looks a little bit different? Absolutely. And some people won't agree that it needs to change, but those that do, I encourage them to participate and engage because business has a hugely important role to play or has, has the opportunity to play a hugely important role. But unless we step into it, society won't let us play that role. I think inevitably business will change. And I personally believe one of the ways that the environmental crisis will be solved is not by protesters protesting against it, but it's by entrepreneurs doing innovative things to reduce carbon. I think there's no doubt that we need some people to do some innovative things. I think I come from a country with a troubled history and violent protest was an integral part of what turned into peaceful change. And therefore, I guess I have a longer term perspective on the need for protest at the edges to drive change in the center, that you, the environment within which an entrepreneur, either a 
environmentally motivated or a financially motivated entrepreneur can innovate, the space needs to be created for that innovation to be successful. And if you look in America, where we've had amazing tech innovation, that only works because of the way that America is set up and the way that its, its laws work and the way that governments have encouraged and supported those tech companies to innovate. They, of course, then become the big, biggest critics of the system that helped them, but that's because they don't want anyone else coming up the ladder after them. But that is, again, normal human behaviour. Of course it is. Of course it is. But no, going back, Patrick, you've had quite a journey there as a CFO. Yeah. You've had a big realisation in Network Rail. You've gone to the Go Ahead group, hopefully doing different things, behaving differently. But you've now now got to a point in your career that you're doing a completely different set of things. And I think that sort of final final chapter of the journey is I went from Go Ahead to the Capital Group, which is a very large business services and technology outsourcing group and has been through a lot of a lot of difficult times and I think is going in a better direction now, although the share price still refuses to rise. But I only spent a couple of years there, difficulties with COVID and, and I had a different views as to the the way we should execute the strategy. I broadly agreed with the outcomes, but I had a different view on timing and scope of execution. And so left capital took another year off. I was I think I was more deliberate in the year I took off, which was 2021. I actually did some proper therapy rather than coaching, which you know, a bit of talking about my childhood, which was all enormously valuable really. I, I had become a relatively open and self-aware person. So I don't think I learned new things, but the individual that I was working with helped me to reframe my perspective on a lot of the sort of events that I was aware of and helped me to think about them in a, in, in a different way and, and moderate my reactions, particularly to stressful situations. And then yeah, spent the second half of 21 you know, really enjoying myself. I did a lot of cycling. I, I was I learned how to cook. I'd never really cooked before. And my wife is in full-time work, so I was in playing a much more of a support role. And then as we came into 22, I then reached the view that I, I didn't want another permanent full-time CFO role. That chapter was was very much closed and that I wanted to go into some kind of portfolio phase of my career. And so I wanted to get a couple of non-execs, one, one ideally in a, in a listed space, one private equity advisory type thing. And I thought, while I'm waiting for something to happen, uh, maybe I should do an interim role. And so I'm currently in a full-time executive role at Headlam PLC, which is a carpet distributor, but have one sort of one and a half non-exec roles. The, the half will be a full one. And they're recruiting full-time replacement for me at Headlam. And so I'll probably be there for, for a few more months and then launched myself properly into a portfolio existence. And, that, and the other leg in that role was I've had a lot of experiences. I've worked with lots of people that have supported and encouraged and advised and helped me. And so part of what what, what I want to do is carry on doing what I'd always done in my role as, not so much always, but certainly for the last 10 years or so in my role as CFO, and particularly the place like Capita, which is enormous. So there were lots and lots of people, many of whom still help a little bit, who were at different points in their careers. Where I could, I could, I made space to spend time with them and help and encourage them. And so I guess I'd like to do a bit more of that. And we call that mentoring. And so that's 
why I'm really interested in, in finding people who are curious about how they can be more effective and how they can have a broader impact than simply drilling the results and nailing the job that they're in at the moment. That needs to be done, but it's, in my experience, not enough. Tell me a little bit, Patrick, about your lead attitude towards leadership. I think you've got a five-step model. Yeah. So I've got, uh, it's a, it's the five C model. So it's not the five-step model, but it, my philosophy about leadership is that leadership is about influence. And therefore, everybody is a leader because we all influence somebody. As we lead people, we need to think about the whole person. People talk about work-life balance. I'm not a kind of big believer in that. I think you've got one life and it has many dimensions. And it's about, it is about balance, but it's about balancing those dimensions. And I think, as I said earlier, it's about being, making deliberate choices about where and how we focus at different points in our life. As I've thought that through and, and spoken and talked to people, I've come up with the, the five C's model, which is what is it that the leader needs to support their people with? And so the first C for me is context, and that's the why question. Unless people know why they're at work, nothing else makes sense. Unless you know why the business is here and why you're here and what we're trying to do and what the strategy is, and leaders have a responsibility to communicate and share. And yeah, it's a two-way process. But once that position has been settled, the leader is responsible for, for, for providing context, whether that's strategic, where's the business going, or a why are we doing this particular thing, that context is important. The second C, which was interesting to me because I, I didn't think about it the first time I did it, it used to be a 4C model. The second C is commitment. And I always just assumed that if you explain to people why something was important, they would obviously commit. But there is a hugely important step of, of securing commitments. Sometimes agreements break out spontaneously and everybody, you know, and if you say, shall we go to the pub? Generally, that gets a spontaneous agreement. But most often people want to express a different view. They want to be heard. They may need to disagree and commit, as I think the Amazon philosophy is or whatever it is. But you need to secure people's commitment. And that needs to be both intellectual and emotional. The third thing is clarity, which is the stuff we all know about. That's resources, budgets, targets, milestones, all the things. What does winning look like? You know, for me, always, if we do this and we're all celebrating, what, what will it look like? So that, to me, is clarity. The fourth thing, and this is perhaps more a big organization thing, is connections. By virtue of where we sit in an organization, we, as leaders, can make connections for our people. Oh, hang on, over there they tried that. Why don't you go talk to them? Or I know this person from previous role, they might be able to help you with this. So we can facilitate connections. For to me, that's not just a big organization thing, Patrick. That applies just as much in a small organization, particularly yeah. if you're, you're that finance leader who's very much on their own. One of the things we've found in Grow CFO is that those yeah. are crying out support from their peers, support from other people, support yeah. from people that have done it before. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think so, so leaders also have a responsibility to make their own connections. And then the fifth C is compassion, which is a word not often heard from the lips of a finance director. But in my worldview, we, people spend a huge amount of time at work. I did this model a long time ago and life wasn't nearly as tough as it is today. So it only feels like it's, it's more true. Life is tough that people have money worries, that they might have teenage kids, they might have elderly relatives, but the world is a hard place. And unless we can find space in the workplace for compassion, then then I think we've got a real problem because yeah. you know, it's hard for our people to be sustainably productive if 
their finances are in a mess or if their health is suffering because of habits that they either addicted to or, or, or have chosen to follow. And so I think as leaders, there is a legitimate space for compassion. Compassion you know, is feeding with. So we're not lecturing people and telling them that they should you know, eat better or smoke less or drink less or, or whatever it might be, or telling them how to be a good parent or whatever. But we're just drawing alongside our people and saying, how can we help you across your whole life? To me, some of that's recognizing that somebody that's working for you might not be firing all, all cylinders, might not have quite produced what you want. And it's saying, well, what's wrong? And yeah. discovering that, oh, there's a family problem going on in the background, and the compassion bit is saying, well, go and sort it. I'll see you when it's done. And I think the, the 70s, 80s philosophy of leave your problems at the door and come to work is like, yeah, maybe, but I don't think it ever worked. <laughs> I don't think it works now. Um, I'm sure there are some um, people that use work as an escape to walk away from the problem. <laughs> it's, it's not the way it should be. Yeah, um, Patrick, a long career, some fantastic experience. Just to sum up, what is it that you think somebody coming to you as a mentee would get that makes makes you a little bit unique? I always like to have a good time. So a lot of time during the day laughing and laughing with others. And so I think yeah, a, a sense of a lot of amusement, but a sense of curiosity and, and slight wonder at the, the way the world is and the ability to laugh at it. I think the experience of having gone through some really difficult times, both personally and professionally and emerged from them as a broadly positive and enthusiastic person. I've made a lot of mistakes. So as a minimum, anybody who works with me will be given a long list of mistakes that I've made that they perhaps have the opportunity to avoid making as they journey through life. And, and I've learned a lot of things and perhaps some of the things that I've, I've learned people will find helpful. Brilliant. Patrick, thank you hugely for being this week's guest on the Growth CFO Show. It was my pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me.